Chapter Eleven, Part Five of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Eleven, Columbia, South Carolina, Part Five. May Twenty Ninth. Betsy, recalcitrant maid of the W's, has been sold to a telegraph man. She is as handsome as a mulatto ever gets to be, and clever in every kind of work. My Molly thinks her mistress very lucky in getting rid of her. She was a dangerous inmate, but she will be a good cook, a good chambermaid, a good dairymaid, a beautiful clear starcher, and the most thoroughly good-for-nothing woman I know to her new owners, if she chooses. Molly evidently hates her, but thinks it her duty to stand by her color. Mrs. Gibson is a Philadelphia woman. She is true to her husband and children, but she does not believe in us, the Confederacy, I mean. She is despondent and hopeless, as wanting in faith of our ultimate success, as is Sally Baxter Hampton. I make allowances for those people. If I had married North, they would have a heavy handful in me just now up there. Mrs. Chestnut, my mother-in-law, has been sixty years in the South, and she has not changed in feeling or in taste one iota. She cannot like hominy for breakfast, or rice for dinner, without a relish to give it some flavor. She cannot eat watermelons and sweet potatoes sans discretion, as we do. She will not eat hot cornbread à discretion, and hot buttered biscuit without any. Richmond is obliged to fall, sighed Mrs. Gibson. You would say so, too, if you had seen our poor soldiers. Poor soldiers, said I. Are you talking of Stonewall Jackson's men? Poor soldiers, indeed. She said her mind was fixed on one point, and had ever been, though she married and came south. She never would own slaves. "'Who would that was not born to it?' I cried, more excited than ever. She is very handsome, very clever, and has very agreeable manners. "'Dear madam,' she says, with tears in her beautiful eyes, "'they have three armies. "'But Stonewall has routed one of them already, Heath another.' She only answered by an unbelieving moan. "'Nothing seemed to suit her,' I said as we went away. "'You did not, certainly,' said someone to me. "'You contradicted every word she said with a sort of indignant protest.' "'We met Mrs. Hampton Gibbs at the door, another Virginia woman as good as gold. "'They told us Mrs. Davis was delightfully situated at Raleigh, "'North Carolinians so loyal, so hospitable. "'She had not been allowed to eat a meal at the hotel.' "'How different from Columbia,' said Dr. Gibbs, looking at Mrs. Gibson, who has, no doubt, been left to take all of her meals at his house. "'Oh, no,' cried Mary. "'You do Columbia injustice.' Mrs. Chestnut used to tell us that she was never once turned over to the tender mercies of the Congaree cuisine, and at McMahon's it is fruit, flowers, invitations to dinner every day. "'After we came away, "'Why did you not back me up?' I was asked. Why did you let them slander Columbia? It was awfully awkward, I said. But, you see, it would have been worse to let Dr. Gibbs and Mrs. Gibson see how different it was with other people. Took a moonlight walk after tea at the Halcott Greens. All the company did honor to the beautiful night by walking home with me. Uncle Hamilton Boykin is here, staying at the Desessures. He says, Manassas was play to Williamsburg, and he was at both battles. He led a part of Stuart's cavalry at the charge at Williamsburg, riding a hundred yards ahead of his company. 
Toombs is ready for another revolution, and curses freely everything Confederate from the President down to a horse-boy. He thinks there is a conspiracy against him in the army. Why? Heavens and earth, why? June 2nd. A battle is said to be raging round Richmond. I am at the Prestons. James Chestnut has gone to Richmond suddenly on business of the military department. It is always his luck to arrive in the nick of time and be present at a great battle. Footnote. The Battle of Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, took place a few miles east of Richmond on May 31 and June 1, 1862, the Federals being commanded by McClellan and the Confederates by General Joseph E. Johnston. End footnote. Wade Hampton shot in the foot, and Johnston Pettigrew killed. A telegram says Lee and Davis were both on the field, the enemy being repulsed. Telegraph operator said, Madam, our men are fighting. Of course they are. What else is there for them to do now but fight? But, madam, the news is encouraging. Each army is burying its dead. That looks like a drawn battle. We haunt the bulletin board. Back to McMahon's. Mim Cohen is ill. Her daughter, Isabel, warns me not to mention the battle raging around Richmond. Young Cohen is in it. Mrs. Preston, anxious and unhappy about her sons. John is with General U.G. at Richmond, Willie in the swamps on the coast with his company. Mim tells me her cousin, Edwin de Leon, is sent by Mr. Davis on a mission to England. Reverend Robert Barnwell has returned to the hospital. Oh, that we had given our thousand dollars to the hospital and not to the gunboat. Stonewall Jackson's movements, the Herald says, do us no harm. It is bringing out volunteers in great numbers and a Philadelphia paper abused us so fervently I felt all the blood in me rush to my head with rage. June 3rd. Dr. John Chevis is making infernal machines in Charleston to blow the Yankees up. Pretty name they have, those machines. My horses, the overseer says, are too poor to send over. There was corn enough on the place for two years, they said, in January. Now, in June, they write that it will not last until the new crop comes in. Somebody is having a good time on the plantation, if it be not my poor horses. Molly will tell me all when she comes back, and more. Mr. Venable has been made an aide to General Robert E. Lee. He is at Vicksburg and writes, When the fight is over here, I shall be glad to go to Virginia. He is in capital spirits. I notice army men all are when they write. Apropos of calling Major Venable Mr., let it be noted that in social intercourse we are not prone to give handles to the names of those we know well, and of our nearest and dearest. A general's wife thinks it bad form to call her husband anything but Mr. When she gives him his title, she simply drops into it by accident. If I am mixed on titles in this diary, let no one blame me. Telegrams come from Richmond ordering troops from Charleston. Cannot be sent, for the Yankees are attacking Charleston, doubtless with the purpose to prevent Lee's receiving reinforcements from there. Sat down at my window in the beautiful moonlight and tried hard for pleasant thoughts. A man began to play on the flute with piano accompaniment. First, ever of thee I am fondly dreaming, and then, the long, long weary day. At first I found this but a compliment to the beautiful scene, and it was soothing to my wrought-up nerves. But von Weber's last waltz was too much. I broke down. Heavens, what a bitter cry came forth, with such floods of tears. The wonder is there was any of me left. 
I learned that Richmond women go in their carriages for the wounded, carry them home, and nurse them. One saw a man too weak to hold his musket. She took it from him, put it on her shoulder, and helped the poor fellow along. If ever there was a man who could control every expression of emotion, who could play stoic or an Indian chief, it is James Chestnut. But one day when he came in from the council, he had to own to a breakdown. He was awfully ashamed of his weakness. There was a letter from Mrs. Gilliard asking him to help her, and he tried to read it to the council. She wanted a permit to go on to her son, who lies wounded in Virginia. Colonel Chestnut could not control his voice. There was not a dry eye there, when suddenly one man called out, God bless the woman. Johnston Pettigrew's aide says he left his chief mortally wounded on the battlefield. Just before Johnston Pettigrew went to Italy to take a hand in the war there for freedom, I met him one day at Mrs. Frank Hampton's. A number of people were present. Someone spoke of the engagement of the beautiful Miss Blank to Hugh Rose. Someone else asked, How do you know they are engaged? Well, I never heard it, but I saw it. In London, a month or so ago, I entered Mrs. Blank's drawing-room, and I saw these two young people seated on a sofa opposite the door. Well, that amounted to nothing. No, not in itself, but they looked so foolish and so happy. I have noticed newly engaged people always look that way. And so on. Johnston Pettigrew was white and red in quick succession during this turn of the conversation. He was in a rage of indignation and disgust. "'I think this kind of talk is taking a liberty with the young lady's name,' he exclaimed finally, "'and that it is an impertinence in us.' "'I fancy him left dying alone. I wonder what they feel, those who are left to die of their wounds, alone on the battlefield.' Free schools are not everything, as witness this spelling. Yankee epistles found in camp show how illiterate they can be with all their boasted schools. Fredericksburg is spelled F-R-E-D-R-E-X-B-I-R-G. Medicine, M-E-T-I-S-O-N. And we read, To my S-W-E-A-T brother, etc. For the first time in my life, no books can interest me. Life is so real, so utterly earnest, that fiction is flat. Nothing but what is going on in this distracted world of ours can arrest my attention for ten minutes at a time. June 4th. Battles occur near Richmond with bombardment of Charleston. Beauregard is said to be fighting his way out or in. Mrs. Gibson is here at Dr. Gibbs's. Tears are always in her eyes. Her eldest son is Willie Preston's lieutenant. They are down on the coast. She owns that she has no hope at all. She was a Miss Eyre of Philadelphia, and says, We may look for Burnside now. Our troops which held him down to his iron flotilla have been withdrawn. They are three to one against us now, and they have hardly begun to put out their strength, in numbers, I mean. We have come to the end of our tether, except we wait for the yearly crop of boys as they grow up to the requisite age. She would make despondent the most sanguine person alive. As a general rule, says Mrs. Gibson, government people are sanguine, but the son of one high functionary whispered to Mary G. as he handed her into the car, Richmond is bound to go. The idea now is that we are to be starved out. If they shut us in, prolong the agony, it can then have but one end. Mrs. Preston and I speak in whispers, but Mrs. McCord scorns whispers and speaks out. She says, There are our soldiers. 
since the world began there never were better, but God does not deign to send us a general worthy of them. I do not mean drill sergeants or military old maids who will not fight until everything is just so. The real ammunition of our war is faith in ourselves and enthusiasm in our cause. West Point sits down on enthusiasm, laughs it to scorn. It wants discipline. And now comes a new danger, these blockade runners. They are filling their pockets, and they jibe and sneer at the fools who fight. Don't you see this stone wall, how he fires the soldiers' hearts? He will be our leader, maybe, after all. They say he does not care how many are killed. His business is to save the country, not the army. He fights to win, God bless him, and he wins. If they do not want to be killed, they can stay at home. They say he leaves the sick and wounded to be cared for by those whose business it is to do so. His business is war. They say he wants to hoist the black flag, have a short, sharp, decisive war, and end it. He is a Christian soldier. June 5th. Beauregard retreating and his rear guard cut off. If Beauregard's veterans will not stand, why should we expect our newly levied reserves to do it? The Yankee general who is besieging Savannah announces his orders are to take Savannah in two weeks' time, and then proceed to erase Charleston from the face of the earth. Albert Luria was killed in the Battle of June 1st. Last summer, when a bomb fell in the very thick of his company, he picked it up and threw it into the water. Think of that, those of ye who love life. The company sent the bomb to his father. Inscribed on it were the words, Albert Luria, bravest where all are brave. Isaac Hayne did the same thing at Fort Moultrie. This race has brains enough, but they are not active-minded, like those old revolutionary characters, the Middletons, Lounses, Rutledges, Marians, Sumters. They have come direct from active-minded forefathers, or they would not have been here. But with two or three generations of gentlemen planters, how changed has the blood become? Of late, all the active-minded men who have sprung to the front in our government were immediate descendants of Scotch or Scotch-Irish, Calhoun, Macduffie, Chevis, and Pettigrew, who Huguenotted his name, but could not tie up his Irish. Our planters are nice fellows, but slow to move, impulsive, but hard to keep moving. They are wonderful for a spurt, but with all their strength, they like to rest. June 6th. Paul Hayne, the poet, has taken rooms here. My husband came and offered to buy me a pair of horses. He says I need more exercise in the open air. "'Come now, are you providing me with the means of a rapid retreat?' said I. "'I am pretty badly equipped for marching.' Mrs. Rose Greenhow is in Richmond. One half of the ungrateful Confederates say Seward sent her. My husband says the Confederacy owes her a debt it can never pay. She warned them at Manassas, and so they got Joe Johnston and his paladins to appear upon the stage in the very nick of time. In Washington they said Lord Napier left her a legacy to the British legation, which accepted the gift, unlike the British nation who would not accept Emma Hamilton and her daughter Horatia, though they were willed to the nation by Lord Nelson. Mim Cohen, fresh from the hospital where she went with a beautiful Jewish friend, Rachel, as we will call her, be it her name or no, was put to feed a very weak patient. Mim noticed what a handsome fellow he was, and how quiet and clean. She fancied by those tokens that he was a gentleman. In performance of her duties, the lovely young nurse leaned kindly over him and held the cup to his lips. When that ceremony was over and she had wiped his mouth, to her horror she felt a pair of by no means weak arms around her neck and a kiss upon her lips, 
which she thought strong indeed. She did not say a word. She made no complaint. She slipped away from the hospital, and hereafter in her hospital work will minister at long range, no matter how weak and weary, sick and sore the patient may be. And, said Mim, I thought he was a gentleman. Well, a gentleman is a man, after all, and she ought not to have put those red lips of hers so near. June 7th. Chevis McCord's battery on the coast has three guns and one hundred men. If this battery should be captured, John's Island and James Island would be open to the enemy, and so Charleston exposed utterly. Wade Hampton writes to his wife that Chickahominy was not as decided a victory as he could have wished. Fort Pillow and Memphis have been given up. Next, and next. Footnote. Fort Pillow was on the Mississippi above Memphis. It had been erected by the Confederates, but was occupied by the Federals on June 5, 1862, the Confederates having evacuated and partially destroyed it the day before. On June 6, 1862, the Federal fleet defeated the Confederates near Memphis. The city soon afterward was occupied by the Federals. End footnote. End of chapter 11, part 5.